I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we're talking about Mean Girls, the 2004 film written by Tina Fey, based on the book Queen Bees and Wannabes by Rosalind Wiseman, directed by Mark Waters. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Why are you so obsessed with me? <laughs> and Alex Cayotos. Hi. Before we dive in, our question for people listening on the Spotify app is, what is your favorite high school comedy? This is like a new genre for us to explore, so I'm I'm excited to dive into it. This is also our first recording since our patrons wrote up a Beyond the Screenplay drinking game. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. So we might be slightly more <laughs> awkward and self-aware today, just like like on a meta level. Um, so you'll just have to forgive us for that. I am I am already saying I don't claim responsibility for my what am I watching if anyone has to go to the hospital. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and that kind of thing. Right, and, and that, and that sort of thing. thing. Yeah. So that's just one of the many things that are happening over on the Beyond the Screenplay Discord. So that's what you're missing out on, people that aren't patrons. So if you want to... Learn the rules to a drinking game that will definitely send you to the hospital for <laughs> alcohol poisoning. <laughs> Support us on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Mean Girls. I don't think I saw this when it came out. I think I was actually pretty late to the party. I think it came out and I assumed it was just another teen movie and wasn't interested. And I think it was only later after watching 30 Rock and like loving that, that I was like, oh, Tina Fey made this other movie that's okay. She's the one behind Mean Girls. I guess I'll go watch that. So I think it was maybe even like 10 years later that I watched it, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was super fetch (laughs) and just, uh, yeah, such a clever just clever, full of cleverness. I love Tim Meadows as the yeah. principal. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just so many I great love performances. Him so much. <laughs> yeah. That's, but then I also was like struck by how well structured the movie was. Like, it's just yeah. such a nice, solid, like, basic hero's arc. Stru- like, she goes in, she does the thing. She kind of like, we can talk about all of that. So, yeah, I just remember being impressed by it and also having tons of fun and, and really enjoying it because it's so funny. Brian and Trisha. I want to hear about your relationship with Mean Girls. Trisha, go first. Sure. So this movie came out in 2004, and i that is the year that I graduated from high school. Class of 04. Michael, you and Alex, are you guys also 04? I'm 05. Alex is 05. Aw, oh, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't catch this when I was actually in high school. It was probably when I was in college, so I, you know, on DVD. And I think I remember actually watching it in the dorms, like my freshman year, you know, somebody who had the DVD for it. And it's just so funny and so quotable and there's something about it that rings so true and I find that especially fascinating with this movie because with a lot of teen comedies that are in this genre I don't relate to them at all because I went to this tiny tiny Christian school I actually went to two different high schools my freshman and sophomore year there were 12 people in my class wow I transferred to a slightly bigger school right before junior year, and there were about 30 people in my class. So there were 30 people in my graduating class and, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred in the entire school, but very, very small. And so a lot of other teen movies that are kind of about cliques don't really make a ton of sense to me. And I feel like teen movies also tend to be more about like getting in trouble hijinks, which this movie mm. is not about that. Like, it's not really about like drinking or, or it's not even really about dating because it's the, you know, the central arc of the character is about a friendship and sort of, yeah, inter, 
you know, intergirl dynamics, I guess, if you want to just put it that way. <laughs> and so I think that's the reason that a lot of this, you know, I think no matter what kind of high school you went to, there's something really relatable about this. And it gave us the like lingo. Like, I feel like it gave our entire generation a sort of a uh, touch point for the way that we talk about high school, like the plastics and fetch and the different cliques. And, you know, on Wednesdays we wear pink, all of this stuff is just sort of how our generation kind of communicates about what's popular and cool. And I don't know, it's so good, basically. Like, I just don't, <laughs> I don't know who millennials are, you know, sort of apart from mean girls. I feel like it's part of the way that we sort of understand each other in a lot of ways, or at least at least the ones that I know and the ones that I went to school with. So yeah. what an iconic movie. I'm so glad we're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Yeah, I, th I think mine, my experience was more like yours, Michael, where I don't remember exactly when I saw it, but it was somewhere in the like 04 to 0 seven or eight just like 2004 was this interesting year where there were movies like anchorman and even dodgeball where like you could have <laughs> you talk about the quality of those films but <laughs> oh my god i loved dodgeball but there were movies that like the first time you saw them you're like okay that was fine or that was kind of funny or maybe that was bad but then you just realized everyone was quoting them and you were quoting yeah. them and you yeah. were thinking about them over and over again and i thought that that's just sort of a fascinating thing where it was like movies that you don't realize you like until later or something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think the first time I saw Mean Girls, I was like, that was good. I enjoyed it. But then it was sort of the, the this life that it had over, the, like you were saying, Trisha, those next 10 years where then people would start mm -hmm. quoting it. And then you'd be like, I kind of want to watch it again. And then you'd watch it again. You'd be like, it's better the second time. And so yeah, I'd seen it maybe three times uh, or so. And then just watching it again for this was sort of that like, on one hand, oh, I remember this scene. And on the other hand, oh, I forgot this part like just sort of i had been just long enough that it was really fun and exciting to to watch it again i, I think uh, real quick what you were saying trisha about like sort of teen comedies is i think what makes this movie work is it's sort of a teen comedy that's not for teens uh it's sort of almost like like john hughes movies where it's like the humor is a little directed towards an older age and, and it's not to say that teens can't appreciate the movie or anything like that or, or that it's not for them either but i think there's a reason why this movie works really well when we are in our 30s and can still watch it and appreciate it without feeling like oh yeah i i like this movie when i was 16 but i don't really like it anymore because it operates on on more levels than that like any good mm -hmm. movie does it operates for for multiple ages i'm not sure if that's true actually i think this movie is pretty squarely aimed at its demographic like at high schoolers and people who are going through it i don't know i think about movies like lady bird or eighth grade that are R-rated movies about teens. Mm. And even though I really love those movies, they're rated R because the content in them is a little more mature. And here's the thing. High schoolers are always edgier, I'm going to say, than the entertainment that purports to be about them. That's not the case for High School Michael, but continue. Okay. Well, for the most part. Right. You're, you're right. <laughs> it runs the gamut. Okay, yeah. definitely true. Depending on where and how you grew up. Straight edge Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Straight edge Michael. Um, <laughs> developmentally, children tend to like stories about characters that are a few years older than they are. So if you're you know, teaching a book to a, a fifth grade class or something, they're going to most enjoy literature that's like got a seventh grade protagonist. Right. Because it helps them develop it like it's aspirational um, and teaches them about the next phase that they are entering. 
rather than aiming at the phase that they're in. So I think that Mean Girls is probably not for high schoolers, but I would say it's probably for middle schoolers, actually. Hmm. It's rated PG-13 very deliberately. The original screenplay was, you know, I was reading a little bit about it, and the original script was much more rated R. And I think movies like Lady Bird in 8th Grade are more directed at actual high schoolers, mm-hmm. where they're actually ready for R-rated content in high school. And so a PG-13 movie is for a 13-year-old, and that's actually a middle schooler for the most part. And they made the conscious decision, you know, Mark Waters and, and Tina Fey and the rest of the producers made the conscious decision to take a lot of that R-rated content out of Mean Girls so they could get a PG-13 rating. Sure. You know, I don't have the data in front of me about how this did among 10 to 15 year olds that are, you know, slightly younger or even among high schoolers. But I would bet that that's more who it was being marketed toward and probably middle school girls, right? So like the characters at the end that are the junior plastics that are like, you know, freshmen, Mm -hmm. like little mini plastics or whatever. (laughs) I think that's who this movie was originally created for. I I mean, I do think there's a reason and you're right about why it's resonant for those of us that are in our 30s. But I also think that that's probably wasn't the intention of the filmmakers is all I'm saying. I I mean, maybe I I think I think it's all true in the sense of uh, my point was more how many women in their like late thirties are watching confessions of a teenage drama queen for the 10th time sure, or sleepover or whatever, like movies that or came out. that high school t- musical. Well, right? that one, I don't know. Cause it had like more of a life, but yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a reason why, why people who were, who were in their uh, teenagers when mean the girls came out and people who were in their twenties when mean girls came out still love mean girls almost 20 years later that's more my point not that it was like not directed for high schoolers but that it was sort of that there there is a um maturity to the humor and everything about this movie that like makes it continue to resonate and continue to last the older doesn't matter how old you get for sure the humor is not cheap or shallow or like slapsticky right right? it's not aimed at kids i think you're totally right about that Right. right yeah i think there's things that i wouldn't have appreciated if i had seen it as a high schooler when it came mm-hmm. out that I could appreciate 10 years later, right. looking back and like some of the jokes about like Tina Fey's character and <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Tina, like all of those like more adult problems and like that perspective is in there. You don't have to like understand it to like appreciate the movie. And so I think that's, that is kind of what we're saying here. It's there's something in here for everyone, which I think is why it can like stand the test of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Before we go too far, Alex, I don't want to leave you behind. Alex, so when did you first see this? Are you a a later or a when it came out person? I'm genuinely trying to remember like the context of when I first saw it. And I I really can't remember. I know I had seen it in the vicinity of high school and or college, but I I couldn't tell you like when or where I saw it. But I I definitely saw it. And I think it was it wasn't in theaters. It definitely was after it it had become a thing. And mm-hmm. I think it was definitely on DVD, you know, at somebody's house or in the college dorm room situation like you, Trisha. Uh, so it was it was in that in that era, but I can't pinpoint it. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was always a fine movie. And I really like, you know, a lot of Tina Fey's work in 30 Rock and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And I, looking back on this now, I can see the seeds of a lot of first signature comedy here. And I, and I really revisiting this movie, I appreciated those seeds more than I did back then before I really knew Tina Fey as kind of the solo writer presence. I appreciate that now looking back on it, just seeing where she was kind of honing her, her like very specific sensibility and her specific type of comedy. And there's some moments in this that do stand out because nobody else but Tina Fey would do this joke or 
have this moment land the way it lands. And that's why it doesn't feel like a typical teen comedy because it's got that Tina Fey edge going on. Right. But in some ways, I feel like a bad gay because because <laughs> you can function like like the gay like the gay male community especially i feel like is like all about mean girls and you know i think i know this movie more through memes in like group threads with other gay men than like watching this movie <laughs> right so it's, it's really interesting how i think my experience with this movie is less about the movie itself and more about its impact on culture it's like universal like we have a gay friend in chile and he was yelling at my husband for not watching mean girls you know like it was <laughs> really fascinating like why this movie why has this caught on with this community or a lot of different communities yeah i'm, I'm fascinated by it more than like i'm personally a super fan uh, just because of the the meme culture that has you know sprung up around it for sure well, and I wonder how much that is, you know, Tina Fey in her book, Bossy Pants, talks a lot about like high school and how she kind of like hung out with all the gays, basically, and like mm-hmm. was a band and like all she was like the nerdy people. So I feel like there's a lot more speaking from experience about like all the nerdy subcultures also, or just like she saw them and like, I feel like this movie represents them in a way that isn't like a punchline, but is, you know, like 10 Things I Hate About You, I think has like a similar sort of like, we're going to like talk about the clicks a little bit and like, haha, everybody has clicks. But I feel like how they're portrayed and the time spent on them feels a little bit more, I think anyway, like a speaking from experience and like not judging them or like just turning them into jokes. That's not 100% true, but more so than I think a lot of teen movies. Well, and I think just the fact that there is a main gay character was a big deal in 2004 and right. mm. it was like it was like you know one of the made the main friends in the movie is like openly gay from the beginning and that's just what it is and there's not a big deal made out of it it's 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 it can be a funny thing sometimes but it's not ever like at that character's expense you know so that was special at the time and i mean even six years later with scott pilgrim versus the world it was still a big deal oh yeah to have a major gay character in kind of this teen comedy setting that Mm -hmm. wasn't just like a one note side character punchline so i think that is a big deal that tina fey was down to just have these characters be openly gay and it's kind of funny every time i watch this movie i think lizzie kaplan is definitely also gay and then not gay at the end and i'm kind of disappointed (laughs) sure but anyway it, it was nice to have the representations at that moment in time which was also like a not great moment for gay rights in america mm, <laughs> right exactly. for sure yeah and also just like the gothiness of the lizzie kaplan character and that kind of thing right. it's not like they're the norm the normies and then the crazy people it's like everyone in this movie is like a little over the top which makes everyone yes. normal yeah right right for sure i was reading this article today that was published in cosmopolitan a couple years ago those are delicious <laughs> true story um and pink But I was reading this article that was an interview with Mark Waters and basically the a lot of the supporting cast of of Mean Girls. And it's really interesting, as well as the casting director. It's a really great article that was like written, you know, a few years ago, I think for the 15 year anniversary of this movie. But they were interviewing Daniel Franzese, you know, who plays Damien. And he was closeted at the time that he took this part. Oh, interesting. And so it was really big deal for him to play Mm. this character. And actually, also, Jonathan Bennett, who plays Aaron Samuels, Mm -hmm. is also gay. Hmm. And so they were, like, bonding on set and talking about this. And neither one of them was, you know, super out about their sexuality. And the fact that this, as you're pointing out, that this is part of the text of the movie. And it's part of what makes, you know, obviously, there's a, a really big subplot or just sort of, like, backstory 
piece for the Lizzie Kaplan character. Right. Mm -hmm. Janice, the rumors about her sexuality ruined her life. Right. Uh, And so that's a, a big part of the text of this. But at the same time, yeah, the representation is so honest and so fun and light most of the time. And right. What a great, I think that's such a win that it doesn't surprise me that the gay community loves this movie. Right. Because it's in there in overall a really positive way. Right. Totally. Yeah. It actually weirdly has the same ending as the movie Airheads from, I think, like 1991 with Brendan Fraser, Adam Sandler and Steve Buscemi, where it's like he he like has to admit that he was like a, a nerd in high school or something. And then everyone in the crowd is like, me too. And it's sort of I think it's it's the celebration of being different and stuff like that that happens at the end of, of this movie and that movie. That's the only way those movies are similar. But <laughs> but like it's like Lizzie Kaplan's, you know, ending is not like her proving she's not gay or something. It's her like leaning into the rumor and being like who cares like we can right, like let's just all right. celebrate who we are and not be victimized by people who expect you to be a certain way and i think that's that is what makes this movie you know universally loved i think is that for anybody they're like oh yeah I, it is cool to be yourself and not have to you know be this other thing well right like the, the point isn't we need to bring down the jocks and cheerleaders the point is exactly. like we're all humans right. trying to figure out like teenage life and that we're all in this together. So why don't we all be in this together kind of a thing? That's another big reason that this movie is so endearing, you know, and has been such a favorite for so long. It treats high school click culture with a lot more nuance than I think that right. we like yeah. typically get to see. Where it starts off in like that 10 Things I Hate About You or just sort of like typical teen movie way where it's like, here's all the different cliques and where they sit in the lunchroom. And if you sit with them, that's social suicide. Don't join the mathletes. It starts off that way. But Ultimately, the good guys and the bad guys, quote unquote, don't end up falling along click lines, if I can put it that way, where anybody is capable of being a total bit and anybody is capable of reaching out and making connections across different clicks. And that's one of the awesome things about, you know, the crisis of the movie, which is like sort of the workshop that they end up in, right, where after the burn book gets out and they have to go to the the crisis point of this workshop. That's one of the amazing things that results from that results from this movie or the plot of the movie is that the clicks don't exist by the end. Right. It's not that one click defeats the other. It's that the clicks sort of have kind of dissolved. And, you know, as Lindsay Lohan's character says in voiceover, they don't matter by the end. Yeah. Right. It reminds me of, if you think about previous generation of teen movies like Greece, it ends with yeah. Sandy transforming herself into a cool kid and that's like the moral of the story in the end is like become hot and you know wear leather leather (laughs) pants and get the guy and like that's like the whole movie seems like it's going back and forth on you know these teen dynamics and she's not part of this cool kid group and the solution is to just become a cool kid and get the guy and that's the end so to think about teen movies like beginning there and getting here that's a quite a big difference (laughs) Except, except the pink ladies are still in both. <laughs> yeah. And the John Hughes movies didn't do much toward really breaking down clicks either. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or really, or again, looking at them with like a lot of nuance, like giving the characters lots and lots of 
complexity, which is mm-hmm. something that I think this movie really succeeds at. You know, I was reading again, it's, it's the same article. Everyone go read it. It's a great <laughs> article in Cosmo. They were talking about how, you know, essentially, if you looked at these characters on paper, they read kind of as archetypes in the way that we were talking about with Titanic, where it's like, here's a gay BFF. And it's perfectly possible to play that character in a flat way or to portray that archetype in a very flat way. But the archetypes here are like, this is a weird goth artsy girl. Right. And this is like a mean blonde. And, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a dumb blonde. And it's very easy to see how on paper these are potentially sort of cardboard or flattened versions of these archetypes. But Mean Girls doesn't treat them that way. All of these characters have moments of depth and complexity and empathy where we really understand why they're acting the way that they're acting. So I think that's another thing. Like the Regina George character, the minute that we kind of get to see her home life and her mom actually adds dimension to her and we see her like insecurity and vulnerability and she isn't this impenetrable fortress or mean for the sake of being mean necessarily right there's there's more going on there and part of that's in the writing but part of that's also in the performances and i think that's another big reason you're like Mm -hmm. mean girls is just the characters are feel big like they're comedic characters but there's a lot of complexity to them which to defend John Hughes real quick, I would say that's what's cool about Breakfast Club. Yeah. Is that you have these five characters from different cliques, but then when you bring them together, we're like, oh, we actually can all get together. We're all similar and that kind of thing. And then sort of it raises the question of, yeah, but what happens on Monday when we go back exactly. to, to normal world? Yeah, exactly right. Also, we have to we have to mention briefly uh, Regina's little sister. Just the sure. <laughs> just the ongoing tiniest, <laughs> tiniest joke that says so much about yeah. this household and this like way of thinking and this right. belief system and everything. Totally. Yeah. Well, and just I mean the Amy Poehler mom character is so, yes. so fantastic. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amy Poehler, amazing as always. Yes. Well, and I think it's it's that nuance and that depth that I think makes this movie click for me in ways that most teen movies don't. Yeah. Uh, because it feels more honest like i think i was always weirded out by movies about high school that were so like like the lines are drawn the clicks are this and like every you know there's the jocks and it's very clear like in my high school there was a lot of blurring of those things i appreciate this room as you're saying trisha takes the time to create that nuance and then also casts amazing people to like bring these characters to life like it's kind of crazy it's like looking at the cast now it's like wait what like Amanda yeah. Seyfried and Rachel McAdams. Yeah, and yeah. Like, yeah. It was Amanda Seyfried's first movie. I think it was Lizzie Kaplan's first breakout That's role. Crazy. It's, yeah. What? It's crazy. Rachel McAdams is clearly too old for high school, but like, it's great. <laughs> but she's really so perfect. Yeah. 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 All the all the plastics are just insanely good. Lizzie Kaplan it's is so insanely funny. good. Like everyone is. It, it's one of those things where you can watch it once and be like, oh, they're playing kind of a one note character. But as everyone has been saying, like the characters themselves are more nuanced and also the performances are more nuanced where you realize like how expertly done the performances are rather than just like, I'm going to talk like this the whole time or whatever, just like simple thing you could do. I wonder if maybe the reason it has an appeal to older people too is when you have this movie being written by a sort of late 90s uh, SNL star and then you also cast late 90s SNL stars as as everyone else in the adults and it sort of makes it feel in the same way I love that Elf is sort of such a shout out to if you grew up watching Bob Newhart right and Mary Tyler Moore or like the Rankin Bass films it's like this is for you and it's for like this new generation I feel like Mean Girls does that too by giving you you know here are the like SNL people you grew up with if you are 
this age. And then if you are this age, here are your peers. Here are like the best actresses that are your age who are going to become megastars the next decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of casting, it was really interesting reading about kind of the shuffling of the casting at first. Yeah. Because Lizzie Lohan originally read for Regina George, which could make sense of like, oh, she could totally play that character as well. But they cast Rachel McAdams because Tina Fey felt McAdams was so naturally kind and polite and had this just like sweetness about her that that is really what you want in that character because that is where the evil comes from in the high right. school mean girl is that veneer of sweetness and politeness and kindness, which is actually masking this like terrible evil. <laughs> and I think that's why a lot of the characters in this movie are so they're, they're so big, but there's there's so much fun. Like they're, they're not doing a thing where it's a one note mean girl. They're not just right. openly mean or one note. I'm saying the mean thing at you. They're befriending <laughs> yeah. somebody. They're helping her out. They're like telling that guy to knock it off. But and they're complimenting her bracelet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all of that is actually kind of this top layer on top of a lot of other subtext that is constantly happening. And I think that's what this movie. I mean, Trisha, you, you can talk to this, but I think I think I've read a lot of people saying this movie captures this particularly like girl on girl warfare dynamic better than anything else maybe ever has in that kind of teen setting. And and so much of it and the, the movie actually spells it out kind of in almost like a scientific way. It's like in I, I forget the lines were, but Lindsay Lohan like breaks it down in voiceover, like in Mean Girl Talk, you say this mm -hmm. when you mean this. Mm -hmm. and, you do this when you actually want to say this. Does that resonate with you and your experience in high school, Trisha? Well, before I speak on behalf of all women, right. <laughs> um, first, let me, <laughs> well, I just, I think that the nuance that we're talking about also comes from the writing. The performances are amazing, but even the line, get in loser, we're going shopping, is a perfect encapsulation of the thing that you're talking about, where it's, really passive aggressive it's maybe an insult but at the same time it's an invitation and like maybe affectionate if it's not right, an insult like maybe a buddy tease right maybe uh -huh. right and it's so particular to the way that especially the regina character speaks uh and i love the four-way the like three-way calling four-way calling scenes oh, yeah. they're like a perfect mm -hmm. brilliant aren't you so mad at her for telling me right <laughs> yeah. it's like espionage it's it, like it is yeah. Yeah. but it's so interesting that that particular way of speaking that is half an insult, half affectionate, hard to read, a very aggressive way of speaking that sort of the plastics really like embody and Regina has totally mastered. You can tell that Katie has been completely turned when she talks to Aaron Samuels that way. Right. There's that specific scene where she's inviting him to the party where she's like, no, it's just a few cool people and you better be one of them, Biatch. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's that exact. And then he's like, okay, I will. She's like, shut up. I love that shirt on you. Yeah. <laughs> it's so dizzying right, where you right. don't know if this person hates you or loves you. Right. In the space of a breath. You're like, what did you just say to me? Like, I, I, I have no idea how to react to that. And the thing that that does is it gives the person who's speaking that way complete control of the conversation mm. because it, it puts you back on your heels where you're always sort of running to catch up and they're the one that's steering what's what's going on. And it's so well observed on the part of Tina Fey and so well played by all of those characters, but uh, yeah, especially the Rachel McAdams character. And it does, 
I think resonate with women and girls and the way that they relate to each other. Right. As someone that hung out with almost entirely girls until like after high school, it definitely rang true for me. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, actually, maybe Michael should answer this question because all of my friends were guys. All of Michael's <laughs> yeah. friends were girls. <laughs> yeah, all of my friends were girls. And I, this was definitely navigating conversations and relationships and keeping track of like who's okay with who and who isn't okay with who. Like all of that felt very authentic. <laughs> well, and how can you even keep track? If you end up in, in you know, a four-way calling or three-way calling attack, like she talks about, and, and nothing ever comes of them is the other thing is that, you know. It's not gotcha, now you're screwed or whatever. Yeah, Right. She's like, no, let's go out. Okay. But I don't, don't tell Gretchen. I don't want to go out with Gretchen. And then she's like, well, she told she wants to go out with me, but she told me not to tell you. You know, that whole thing ends with the wonderful Amanda Seyfried moment where she's like, I can't go out. I'm sick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then Rachel McAdams just goes, boo, you whore. And hangs up. Resolves. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing ever comes of that conversation. It's not like then the Karen character is on the outs with Regina or the Gretchen character is really on the outs with them any more than she already was. It's impossible to keep track of like, how serious was that? Is everyone mad at each other now? No, everyone's fine. Yeah. And that I think is... It's it's like the ambiguity is really unnerving. I also experienced this. I also had a lot of girlfriends in high school. And I think what you're identifying, Trisha, is really accurate. There's a powerlessness you feel when you're confronted with somebody who just dominates the room that way with that, like, it's almost like this calculated ambiguity Mm -hmm. to make you never feel comfortable, never feel totally accepted, never feel like you know where you stand. Right. And it's kind of the worst thing (laughs) for like an insecure high school brain. Like it's it's the most terrifying, horrible thing. Well, I'm processing all this through like script writing 101 brain almost where it's like when you think about two characters objectives in a scene, it's it's, you know, each one wants something from the other. And that's what creates the conflict. And you're at your most powerless when you're out of tactics, basically, you know, so if you look at two kids fighting over a candy bar, like it's mine. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. Like that's like they're both they both have no ammo and they're both like in chaos world right? where they're just like yelling things back at each other and it's like as you were pointing out trisha regina's power comes from the fact that she is she's not showing any any backing down or whatever she's like you're barely even in this conversation because of how much i'm dominating you know you get the same with like the male machismo character who walks in in the bar is like hey how you doing oh that guy or hey man i'm gonna let me let me buy you a drink you know whatever like the guy who's just mm-hmm. sort of like trying to be so alpha played in any movie by ryan gosling right exactly <laughs> or tom cruise just just steamrolling just steamrolling yeah. everybody in the yeah, room yeah, yeah. And, and it's an interesting study in in scene writing i think to show it's not just two characters want something with each other to create conflict it's a character already knows how to win the scene and is just doing that basically and it's sort of mm-hmm. like the other character doesn't doesn't have the ammunition to even participate in the conversation and it, it's like a cool other little lesson in scene writing outside of the sort of standard one which is that both characters are sort of like on an equal playing field and sort of butting heads against each other until one of them gets what they want mm-hmm also, like in psychology, you know, like abusive relationships like right, right. are most effective when it's it's not just love or it's not just hate. It's a little bit of both so that you never know right. what you're going to get. Like right. That's how you actually create that kind of abusive power dynamic that is basically what Regina has and is wielding. Gaslighting, that kind of thing. Yeah. Regina, that, that's her playbook is right. constantly giving you both and you don't know what's going on. Right. right. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Another thing that makes this a really standout example in its genre is that the transformation Katie undergoes from like awkward homeschooler to, you know, certified plastic mean girl herself is very slow and very subtle, but it has these sort of distinctive phases. One staple of a teen movie that's sort of like it typical of the genre is a makeover montage where they're like, oh, you're a nerdy girl. We're going to fix your eyebrows and fix mm-hmm. your hair and get you to buy you new clothes. And the mean girls do not do that to Katie. I was waiting for that to happen. I thought when they mm-hmm. first went to the mall, it was going to be like the typical makeover montage. And I, I really appreciated that that wasn't where it went at that moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have more to say about the transformation uh, when we get to lessons. But um, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, Michael, I know you had talked about off mic Dan Harmon's story circle and how this movie sort of like was the one of the first things you thought about when you were thinking about it. And I think it's a great example, as we talked about in our Captain America Iron Man video of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Yep. And not only that, but the movie literally quotes how to do three act structure with the second act being broken into parts at the end when she says, I had gone from homeschooled jungle freak to shiny plastic most hated person in the world to actual human being, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the, the thesis, the antithesis, the crisis, and then finally the synthesis at the end. So like go study Mean Girls if you're trying to see, just look at a very simple example <laughs> of, yeah, of a protagonist's journey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so again, like I said at the beginning, that the structure of this movie is great, is basically perfect. And so yeah, so Dan Harmon's story circle is one of the, structural models that I always wanted to talk about on Lessons from a Screenplay, but just hasn't happened yet for whatever reason. But I always thought this movie was a great pairing for it because of like what you're saying, Brian, that there's this clear transformation that happens and that it is very clearly delineated in the movie and in the wrap up. And so to quickly explain the Dan Harbin story circle, it's basically taking all of the hero's journey and all of the different writing structures. And it's like his breakdown of it, how to like turn it into kind of eight simple steps that you map on a circle that map the hero's journey. The first, so there are eight steps and it kind of goes from a normal world to then the world of chaos and then comes back around. And it's hard to talk about in podcast form without like a diagram on there. It's very visual. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. But you know, the eight steps are you, there's a character that begins in a zone of comfort. Step two is they need something. So then in step three, they go, they enter a new situation. Step four, they search for it and then sort of adapt to this new world they're in. Five, they find, they get what they want, which is super clear in this movie when the Lindsay Lohan character becomes Regina, right? Like she is Mm -hmm. fully assimilated to that. You take that thing that you thought you wanted and in doing so pay a heavy price. So again, in this movie, everything falls apart when she's become Regina. She's alienating her friends and realizing that she's losing the things that actually matter, etc. You return in step seven. So you go back to the familiar situation and then by step eight, you've changed. It's when she's a mathlete. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She like, yeah, starts making all the right decisions and proves that she's learned the lesson in step eight where you've changed. So it's a very, I really like it. Trisha, you've talked about sort of creating your own 
structure template from a bunch of different things. But it's also eight steps. Mm-hmm. Okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ooh, I want to see this. And I've kind of done a similar thing. And and the story circle has actually been one of the really most useful ones for me to reference. So I highly recommend if you want to study this, take out, you know, Google the story circle, a million images will come up, read it, have it open and watch Mean Girls and just like track the plot of it, because it's really fun. And I think it helps you understand the structure and why it's such a satisfying story, like to watch a character go through that whole journey and be transformed, like see them become the evil that they're trying to stop, and then learn from that and come out the other side Like you really buy that the person has changed after mm-hmm. you see them go through all these steps. Right. Mm-hmm. Like my girlfriend, um, she's definitely learned some stuff about structure from like just watching movies and having to listen to me talk. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but like, you know, she's never like made an effort to like sit down and read a book or I've never sat her down and be like, let me explain, you know, whatever. Like she's never read any book ever. <laughs> Here's John Truby's 22 <laughs> right, steps. Right, exactly. I'm sorry. But um, definitely she's seen Mean Girls a ton. And then after we watched it, I pulled up the story circle and just read her those eight steps. And she immediately was like, oh, yeah, like, like as in like that snaps in so perfectly that like I get it. I think what's interesting hearing you go over the story circle, Michael, is I think the one part of this movie that doesn't quite click for me is the idea that what she wants is to become Regina George, because mm-hmm. I, I feel like I, I don't get the sense from her character at the outset that what she wants is that power and popularity. She kind of seems to me like in some ways like a very passive protagonist at first where she's she is she's yeah. really just kind of bouncing around being told what to do by various parties and I don't have enough scenes of her being friends with the weird artist kids to feel like she's super like in with them and like want something in relation to that friendship. I don't understand why she really wants to be Regina George. I get that she wants Regina George's ex-boyfriend. And so that is what I connect right. to where at that midpoint party scene, that's who, what she's after is him. So that all clicks in. I think the movie would have been a little bit, it would have like landed for me, I think a hundred percent if I understood that she had an intrinsic motivation for that Regina George power. And she has to learn not to want that. And I never think that she really wants that. And so when she becomes that, I'm actually kind of confused. I didn't think that that was implicit that you had to do that to get the guy. So that's where the movie like feels a little bit like it's it's doing the story circle, but I don't necessarily buy the journey uh, because I don't I don't understand the intrinsic motivations at all those steps. I mean, I think what I like about it is that it's it's showing how you can become a Regina George without sitting down and saying, I want to become an evil power hungry person. Slippery slope. We're just like maneuvering through high school, trying to like do normal high school things can create a system which can turn you into a Regina George if you're not right. careful. And she's doing evil Re- Regina George things on behalf of the artist friends, which right. Yeah, so. right. yeah, I was thinking that also when Michael was laying out the story circle, but I think that again, there's that's part of the brilliance of this movie, which is that she starts off as pretty much a blank slate and doesn't have any particular goals, but she does want friends. Right. And so, in fact, the first time that she sits down with the plastics, she says, I wasn't in a position to pass up friends. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, that's when that's when Janice and uh, Damien take her out to the back building and skip class. Mm. Uh, but right, it's still yeah. it's this, it's the same line where she's like, I knew skipping class was wrong, but I wasn't in a position to pass up friends. We understand that she does want to be to make friends. And so when Regina's like, oh, sit down with us, we're kind of like, yeah, I mean, we don't know that there's, you know, in Janice's mind, 
there's this binary where Janice is like the ultimate good and Regina George is the ultimate evil. Evil takes the form, right? Takes mm-hmm, human yeah. form in Regina George, right? And so I think that in Janice's mind, there's a binary. But the nice thing about the Katie character at the beginning is that she is kind of a blank slate and doesn't necessarily believe that anyone is evil or anyone is necessarily right. good. Right. And so when she sits down with Regina and the other plastics, we're kind of like, yeah, why not? They haven't been mean to her. Yeah. Right. She's new. She doesn't know any better or any differently. So I think there's there's that where, you know, but then once the Aaron character is introduced where it's like she does want to date him. And then the Halloween party that you're talking about, Alex, is actually the break in act two where she gets betrayed by Regina. Trust me, I looked at it. It's 30 minutes in. I paused paused the streaming to check. Wait, so what's the midpoint? Is the midpoint the book? It's the, the midpoint is that second party that's at Katie's house. Oh. Where she like makes a move on Aaron. And- well, that's 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 what I was talking about. Oh, too. okay. Yeah. So the Halloween party is the break into two. She, she's after Aaron at both parties. Yeah. <laughs> right. The Halloween party is the break into two. The party at Katie's house is the midpoint. Yeah. But ultimately, all of this is kind of wrapped up in the thing that I was really thinking about this time around, which is this movie feels so much better than most teen movies because the supporting characters have real agency. Yeah. All of the supporting characters actually end up having a lot of agency and they affect the plot. Think about how easy it would be to make Gretchen or Karen just completely inconsequential and one-dimensional. Karen kind of is. But but Gretchen ends up being really significant to the plot. Her Caesar monologue is so good. (laughs) We have to crack Gretchen Wieners, right? Like, so... That ends up becoming really consequential to the plot. Aaron Samuels becomes really consequential to the plot. And even people like Ms. Norbury is she Mm -hmm. has agency that ends up affecting what happens to Katie in the end. And so the supporting characters are also pushing and pulling. And so you can have a character that starts as a blank slate and sort of as an every woman um, or an every girl in this case, in, in Katie's case. We don't fault her for falling into the company that she falls into because we see these forces pushing and pulling on her. Yeah. But then when she ends up becoming, you know, a full on mean girl socialized so well into this system that pits young girls against each other, when she reaches that point, then we have to see her get unsocialized or sort of break down right. the, mm-hmm. the system itself that led her to that point. And it works because it's not all put on her. In the same way, it's not Mm. all put on any one character. It's so evenly distributed among all of the different characters at work in this. It's like almost a true ensemble in some ways. It isn't, but it's so refreshing to see supporting characters that, as we mentioned, are three-dimensional and are actually doing stuff that matters. Mm -hmm. Well, right, that like, you know, once she meets Aaron, right, she has her desires, she has her need of this is the thing that I want, but it's her friends, like you're saying, it's Janice that's like, I think you should infiltrate them. I think this is how you Mm -hmm. go and cross the threshold and like, you're going to use their tactics against them. And so it is cool that it's, you know, it's the good guys, right? It's your allies, the people that you think are your friends that are pushing you to do this thing that's going to end up you know, having this, these unforeseen consequences and stuff. So I think, yeah, like you're saying, all the characters being three-dimensional and having flaws while also having desires that we understand, like it makes it compelling and fun and a believable arc, I think. Yeah, Janice is not a purely good person herself. Right. She's been holding this grudge the whole time Mm -hmm. against Regina George and she's really difficult, you know, and- Her hair is crazy. 
Her hair is the most insane. Well, you have to try hard it's full to make of secrets. You have to try hard to make Lizzie Kaplan look anything other than stunningly beautiful, <laughs> right. right? So like they're just Fair. doing the best they can. They're like, let's put her in this, I don't know, weird long skirt and enormous like button down <laughs> on top of eighteen hundred hair clips. I lost my train of thought. But yes, <laughs> to all- <laughs> No, but yes, to all of this, where like everybody does have flaws. Even people like Ms. Norberry. You know, she is trying really hard, but she is antagonizing Katie at different points where she doesn't really understand why Katie's doing what she's doing. And she's like, you're failing this class and, you know, is antagonizing in the sense of getting in the way of Katie's goals and things like that. So there's a lot of complexity to even like very tertiary characters. Look, even Kevin you know, Napur has his moments where he's like, you should join the mathletes. And <laughs> right. He's great. It's all in there. Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Norbury is also like, you know, when you meet her, like she has good advice for Lindsay Lohan, but it's also like, my life just fell apart. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I work three jobs. Like, you don't get a sense that she's like a shining, perfect example of how to live as a human, right? And so I think that is always, I think that adds a nice texture and nuance to the web of a movie or or the character web of like characters that have pieces of truth, but aren't like perfect monolith of this or that right Mm -hmm. because often a teen movie will have the like jesus like teacher character you know that's that's kind of just too good to be true and too perfect that's the perfect mentor and i do love that all the adults are kind of equally confused and (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly now i'm just thinking about alice and jenny and 10 things i hate about you also it's just like (laughs) such a weird guidance counselor it was so mind-blowing for me i love her so much because i saw 10 things i hate about you when i was a kid and then i watched the west wing for forever and then i was like i should go watch 10 things i hate about you and i was like cj craig what are you doing in this movie (laughs) we need to talk about that movie that movie is great I, i i also love uh just Tim Meadows, anytime he like sounds super invested in like whatever's going on with the kids, like when they're doing all the cutaway jokes or whatever, and he's like, I heard one time Aaron Samuels did that. <laughs> whatever. It's just like, yeah, oh, right? yeah, yeah. He just plays it so straight. It's hilarious. Yeah, like the adults are like in on the kid drama and kind of right. care about it. Yeah. Right. right. I'm sure this was not the origin movie of cutaway jokes, but the cutaway jokes in this movie are some of the best. Mm, like that all of those inserts that you're talking about with people just speaking directly right. to camera. That are not explained. Why would they be right? They're just kind of part of the texture of the movie, and mm-hmm. it's great. Well, yeah, it's sort of this this interesting kind of humor that happened around that time. It was like Simpsons did it a little, but then Family Guy came out and did it like crazy. Mm-hmm. And then you see a lot of movies that came out in the sort of wake of Family Guy doing it, like Mean Girls and obviously Thirty Rock. Then then afterwards, or, or Kimmy Schmidt, Arrested Development. Yeah, Arrested Development wasn't a ton of cutaways though like sort of like here's a whole brand new character that you've never met for like one second and then we're coming back to to normalcy do you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and uh, and yeah it's unfortunately one thing that i don't love just for my personal taste i'm not saying it doesn't work for the movie having the uh the mom of the one girl at the mall like she faints when they call her and saying like it's planned parenthood or whatever oh, you know yeah. like things like that where it's like okay we are we are doing like cartoon humor now or like or like an old school snl or something it's right kind of, yeah it feels snl sometimes totally but but i think it also feels tina fey because you get it in 30 rock you get it in kimmy schmidt yeah and i think it's like if it is smartly done i'm okay with it but it's also just like not my personal thing 
Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, like cutting to the the gym teacher uh, t- talking about sex, like the sex yeah. ed thing, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's funny, it's clever, but it's just like not the kind of thing that I personally gravitate towards. But it also makes for the movie to be very quotable because you just lean into like a a silly idea or a silly cutaway or something like that, and then suddenly you're quoting it. So I don't think it's rained once in the past four years where my girlfriend hasn't said there was a thirty percent chance it was already raining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think I like it. When it works because it allows the movie to be a movie. And, Mm. you know, that thing that I talk about a lot of like this movie isn't trying to pretend that this is reality. Right. And I think there are enough of those things sprinkled throughout that it, to me, it lets me kind of like relax. And like this movie isn't trying to hold on to verisimilitude. It's going to be crazy (laughs) with physics and like the way the world works and the way high school works. And I feel like that can then sometimes give it space to cut to things that are true beneath those layers in a way that sometimes you can't always do when you're having to twist around to make sure things feel believable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, why don't we say what lessons we're going to take away from Mean Girls? Trisha, do you want to go first? Do you want to go last? I want to go last, please. <laughs> okay, Brian, what are your lessons from Mean Girls? Uh, yeah, it's a lot of what you guys were just talking about. Of um, I didn't remember how exactly Katie became like becomes a plastic in the movie. And then I was watching the beginning of the movie, and as you said, Alex, like she doesn't she doesn't have this huge need. It's not like because she was homeschooled and from from a different um, you know, and, and spent time in Africa that she's like a bizarre human. Like she makes friends pretty quickly and she has like a little bit of of you know maybe a hard time kind of getting quite settled, but she feels okay pretty quickly. She doesn't have a monologue about like I just want to fit in and you know da 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 whatever. And it, it reminded me of of when we did Devil Wars Prada, which was episode two, I think. Mm-hmm. And I said, when I watched Devil Wars Prada for the first time, I was like, oh, it's it's Mean Girls. It's the plot of Mean Girls in the sense that you have someone who who wants to become this thing, becomes the thing, goes way too far, mm-hmm. loses her either boyfriend or friends for like the cute guy who's in this new world. And then, of course, crisis has become that person so much that they lose everything and then has to sort of synthesize and become this like middle thing. And with Andy in Devil Wars Prada, we get a protagonist who she wants this job and she wants to prove herself, right? So we get sort of a traditional ish like yeah okay we're on your side because you want to prove yourself you want to go do this thing and with katie as you guys were talking about she's sort of a blank slate she wants friends that's clear but she's not she doesn't have this like very strong 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 objective but then as the movie goes on then she sort of gets as you guys were talking about pulled into kind of becoming a plastic but her objective is to harm them is is to do bad things to the plastic so it's like she accidentally comes into this world because she doesn't want them to to exist basically so so it's like okay i she she's got janice pushing her to do certain things and then she likes aaron and then regina does something crappy to her so then she wants to get back at regina so now all of a sudden we are watching our main character 
not try to become a plastic, but try to tear down the plastics by doing all. So it's like the longest time possible for us to be on her side uh, and, and to empathize with her before she sort of goes over into now into like full plastic world where she becomes kind of like not too good for people, but where it feels like her friends are being pushed away and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's a really smart screenwriting to to do that because instead if the movie was her being like i saw i met regina george and she seemed great and i wanted to be just like her we wouldn't really be on her side but it's not it's i met someone who seemed fine and then sort of screwed me over so i wanted to get back at her and then the movie was me trying to get back at the antagonist where you as the audience like yeah go go get the antagonist but then subtly by trying to do that then she ends up becoming like that moment where she's like did i am i the new leader of the plastics like when did that happen Mm mm-hmm Well, she's the right protagonist for this movie. Mm -hmm. And I think you get a lot by completely isolating her from all society at the beginning where she's walking in, starting at actual zero. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really hard to do. And they, the movie, this movie doesn't have like a long, clever opening sequence. It's just like, hi, I'm Katie. I'm from Africa. I don't know anything about society. And (laughs) you're just like, great um let's do that then Uh, but (laughs) that is what is needed for this movie for the structure of it to work as we're talking about and then you have all of these active you know side characters but i think it's such a smart word for a protagonist design which is sometimes you know you don't want to always have an aggressive or assertive or goal-oriented main character you can have characters that are passive or whose goal is to not be noticed. But if that's your character's goal, then they have to actively want it or you have to just do it more than normal. Mm-hmm. So like if Katie had come from like a different school, that might accomplish some of this, but they didn't even bother with that. They're like, no, 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 no. Do it more, make it more extreme, put her even more on the outside. And so that's the thing. You have to keep the volume turned up on your characters, especially on your protagonist. So if you're having sort of a more passive protagonist or an out of fish out of water protagonist, the fish has got to be all the way out of water, <laughs> all the way, not partially right. in water, not from a different pond, just completely out. And that's what the, you get from having her be homeschooled from a different continent. Right. But I think my point, too, and I think Alex's point a little bit is that you could have had the first 10 minutes of the movie being her trying to make friends and, you know, seat taken, seat taken, seat taken. Right. Like, so (laughs) no one wants to be friends with her. And then she meets the plastics. And then and like that's how. But like instead, it's like, no, she meets some pretty cool people right away. So she needs a new objective. She needs a reason to actually become a plastic. And Mm -hmm. her objective is to take down the antagonist. Like, here's an antagonist. You want to take her down. Uh, so you're going to go after her. And then by doing that, you end up becoming one of them. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's interesting thinking about the Devil Wears Prada and how it does that similar thing where she's, you know, a fish out of water. Totally. She knows nothing about fashion. They yep. establish that in a great way that we talked about in that awesome video. Mm-hmm. Go watch it on Lessons from Screenplay. It does let you kind of be on board with the protagonist, like you're saying, Brian, because you're also entering this kind of weird where you can appreciate how someone coming into this world doesn't have an agenda necessarily. Right. And so you get to see them sort of like push away from the world, but then like slowly get sucked into it. And I think that is kind of a cool model. Whereas, yeah, I think there can be movies where it's a bit, you know, the deep flaw, the deep need is like so in your face from the beginning that Mm. it's like, okay, protagonist, you're going to need to learn the value of family 
So at some point, the, something's right. going to come along and, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Logan's right. going to learn he has a clone daughter or whatever. And now you're <laughs> off to the... <laughs> it almost feels like yeah, this kind of story and Devil Wears Prada, they're both stories that the change is subtle and gradual and it's not something that the protagonist is even aware of as it's happening. And it's almost maybe the only flaw for it for me then is that it almost may work better in a TV show or a mini series than a, you know, a two hour movie. Cause right. there is at some point we cut from this scene and in this scene, Lindsay Lohan's character has like a lot more makeup on and like, it, you know, it, it just, there's, there's a little bit of jumpiness in that gradual transformation that I think it was harder for me to like get on board with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the movie does what it can in the time it has to, to make their transformation gradual. And, and they try to, you know, also explain it through some voiceover where she's saying right the more like i don't want to be thinking about her all the time but, but i was always, yeah. i'm always thinking about regina george like for some reason right so she's talking about how the, there is this kind of just slow deterioration happening to her right. mind <laughs> the longer she's in there right there's the one line where she's like talking to someone and she says like i didn't want to be thinking about her like how her shirt should be something i'm sure you remember it more than i am but like she's like i found myself thinking these plastic thoughts when i showed oh, the other female mathlete yeah yeah she's yeah like, right exactly i noticed that her hair wasn't bad and she you know she right. had bad lip gloss on but criticizing her wouldn't make would it prevent her from beating me at math? right 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 it's very interesting because it's it's trying to tell this very internal type of story it's it's yeah it's it's, it's a real life experience where you're when you're in a social situation, we're social creatures. And so like by osmosis, we find our worldviews changing and our opinions changing without us really wanting to just because it's how our brains work. And it's it's hard to show that in a movie. And this movie does it. It really attempts to try to through voiceover uh, yeah. kind of like try to get that across. It's 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 a hard internal state to communicate when mm-hmm. it's like it's maturity it's like right, showing right. maturity which is yeah pretty hard to dramatize well, but it's also like it's showing this thing that people aren't even aware of when it's happening to them you know where mm-hmm. like right there, there's there's some quote that that's like you're the sum of the five closest people oh yeah in your life you know and it's really mm. unfortunately true whether you want it to be or not we just can't help but be influenced by the people we're around and yeah how do you how do you show that transformation all the way to losing yourself and all the way back in two hours. It's, it's quite a difficult challenge. Right. Definitely. Real quick, I want to move on to other people's lessons. But the last thing I'll <laughs> say, because this is all gelling with this, is I think there's something I was thinking about with is like, how much stored up empathy do you have for a character? So it's like if, it, if you, you, I like this character, but then they do something bad, they do something else bad, they do something else bad, and you're like, well, now I don't care about you anymore. Right. But w- what I like about the fact that like Katie's objective is to just get back at the plastics for so long is you build up more and more and more empathy with her so that when she goes into sort of bad territory into plastic territory you're like okay but you have a i have a lot of empathy stored up so i'm a, i can lose some on the empathy meter <laughs> and then still be okay to like carry me into the third act like a video game yeah. right exactly but then to have something like breaking bad where it's like the first maybe couple seasons of breaking bad you're like okay you're you're playing with this but then by a certain point in the show you're like <laughs> okay now i'm out and that's empathy okay. Empathy tank empty. <laughs> empathy tank yeah. empty, but also by design of the show. Right. And the show is like challenging you to like keep following this character now. But I think maybe that's why some shows don't or some movies don't work is because mm. you don't build up enough empathy to let the characters do the bad things they have to do in order to synthesize at the end. Very good point. Yeah. And the actions that she's going to take are 
specifically to be bad. Like part of the plan is to like get back at them, like right. give them a taste of their own medicine. So it like it's, it stretches that the efficiency of your tank a little right. bit more. <laughs> which Regina then does by putting herself into the book, which is such a genius turn. In oh, the movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I love it. That's very great. Just, yeah. Tricky filmmaking, mm-hmm. cutting, yeah. The, cutting the picture in half, showing the Lindsay Lohan yeah. half the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well done. Awesome. Alex, what's your lesson? Uh, it's, you know, it, we often go to midpoints. And I think this movie was just a great example of, like we said, with the story circle stuff. If you want to just see, it's like Pixar. It's like this movie just shows you on the surface what a midpoint is supposed to do or what, or what especially the story circle midpoint is all about, which is right. she has the guy she's wanted has come to this party for her. Like she's gotten, mm-hmm. she's gotten all the way to what she wanted. But to get here, she has become a thing that he doesn't even want. You know, when right. she yeah. when she's talking to him and she's drunk and she's saying she's being a little too honest. He's like, I don't want you to be like this. Why do you why are you pretending to be bad at math? That's weird. Like, what's <laughs> right. wrong with you? It's just, yeah, it's a brilliant example of building a structure uh, in the movie so that she thinks she has to be bad at math. She thinks she has to be like Regina George to get the things she wants. And it turns out all of those things are not the way to get what she wants exactly at that midpoint scene and so mm-hmm. good midpoint scene my mini lesson i thought of just what we were talking earlier about uh, rachel mcadams not looking like she's 17 or whatever mm. i think that casting is actually very smart because i think back to who's like the prom queen prom king kind of archetypes in high school at least in my high school it's those kids that kind of look like they're not in high school anymore yeah you're right totally like they're all they're, they're in their 20s and they're like they're like, yeah. they're like they're like they're like adults and it's kind of weird actually like yeah in my high school it was like there was the one guy that he was like a football star and he looked like he was 25 and mm-hmm. that, but he was like it's almost like what you said earlier trisha about the kids striving <laughs> towards their like developmental like next stage <laughs> it's almost like yeah <laughs> it's like high schoolers they're idolizing the guy and people in their 20s people in their 20s like that's we want to yeah. be out of high school and college or off in our 20s and and so i think it, it makes perfect sense to cast somebody like rachel mcadams who looks like she's in her 20s to be the queen bee of the school because that is what we're all aspiring towards at that moment is like get me out of here get me into adulthood and uh so yeah that just rang really true to me and reminded me of yeah my high school experiences mm-hmm. and yeah, the idols of my high school all looked weirdly adult, which was just funny to think about. Straight Edge Michael didn't want to leave high school at all. Mm-hmm. I liked high school. <laughs> Things were simple. I don't like change. Sure. <laughs> Checks out. Yeah. But yeah, totally. I think this, like you're saying about the midpoint, there's, I think there's different flavors of midpoints. Right. And I think this... This is one kind of midpoint. This mm. is, yeah, one one flavor of midpoint that is done super well, where, yeah, you get what you want, but you become the thing you were trying to destroy and i think that's so compelling it's just so dramatic right it's such a a flip which is really great Mm -hmm. i also think this movie does a good job of setting up the stakes that was something i was paying attention to a little bit more this time of like this is in high school but pretty quickly i get why everything is such a big deal and Mm. obviously i've been to high school so like you're drawing on just you know a shared experience of people being that age but i do feel like the movie just does a good job of like quickly expositing everything so that you know the rules so that you know when people break them or when yeah regina does this to him like you feel the you you feel empathy for Lindsay lohan's character or at least i did mm-hmm. like you know she falls for the boy and then just that yeah like you know that your friend likes that 
guy and so she's purposely flirting with him and she's gonna kiss him at the part like in front of you like like i feel like some of that is obviously just like you know human things but Uh i feel like they establish the word the world of it in a really i feel like you're drawing on some personal experience here michael (laughs) i mean (laughs) like i said i had a lot of friends that were girls and there was a lot of drama that happened in high school (laughs) but i was pretty good at navigating it all and that's why i didn't want to you know grow up it's easier just to stay in high school. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Trisha, what's your lesson? One thing I was struck by watching it this time around was the crisis point, which, as I mentioned, is that assembly with all of the girls. And it's really interesting that this movie basically gives the crisis to everyone, the entire school or all the junior girls, basically. You know, I briefly mentioned this earlier, but... This story has a real ring of truth to it, I think, in a lot of ways. We talk about the Bechdel test, which is when two women are in a scene by themselves and they're speaking to each other about something other than a man. That's what you have to have to pass a Bechdel test in your movie. This movie, of course, really succeeds at that. The entire premise of the movie is about women's relationships with each other. Uh, The Devil Wears Prada is another fantastic example of that, where it's women in the workplace. Right. And what does it take to get ahead at work when your workplace is mostly women and they're navigating that? But the thing that I really love about Mean Girls is that it hits on the universality of teen girls' experiences by including everyone in that crisis point where every single person in, from every clique is hurt by what was written about them in the burn book. And it, it doesn't turn them on the writer of the burn book, it turns them on each other. Mm-hmm. They talk about. Uh, Tim Meadows' character talks about who has a lady problem? You you, you young ladies, would you like to discuss your problems? And then Tina Fey's character takes over and says, you know, how many of you have ever had someone say something about you behind your back? And it's everybody, you know, and it's the same, you know, how many of you have ever talked about someone behind their back? And that's also everybody. I think that that's part of what gives this movie that ring of truth where other teen comedies so focus on the individual characters that you lose the systemic piece Mm -hmm. of it that this movie gets at. I was watching Marie Antoinette this week, Mm. uh, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Whatever you think about that movie aside, the movie is hyper-focused on making sure that you know and remember all the time that Marie Antoinette was a teenager. Mm. And it was like, here's the society that built this teenager and here's who she is because of the environment that she is in, in that case, decadent environment that she's in. And this movie is also speaking to that. It's like, if this is the environment that teen girls are living in, then this is who they become, right? They they end up in this auditorium where they all have a problem with each other because they're, they, you know, all of these things, they are taught that this is how they have to behave to get ahead, or this is what they do to survive the system that they're in. I love, I think that, you know, there are plenty of quotes from that scene that make it iconic and memorable. Like she doesn't even go to the school. <laughs> Do you even go to the school? <laughs> <laughs> it's also just, you know, all of those wonderful supporting cast members and, and all of those girls that are in that scene. It's, it's, this is everybody. This is not just Regina George. Right. Um, and not just Katie Heron. It's the whole school full of girls who are standing in for a whole society full of teenage girls. So. Yeah, I think that's um, 100%. Like what elevates this movie beyond 
you know, in my head, just a teen movie, quote unquote, or whatever. It's that it's about individuals, but it is about this bigger systemic thing. It's about all of it at once while being wildly entertaining. And that is impressive and hard to pull off. So kudos to everyone involved because mm-hmm. it's great. Definitely. What have you guys been watching? Alex, what have you been watching recently? So I went and saw uh, the A24 movie Zola in theaters uh, oh, last nice. week. Ooh. And it continues my A24 streak of just anything they put out, I am interested to see because it's going to give me a new experience of cinema in a theater and I love it. I'm so happy they saved this movie for theaters because it was a really fun movie theater experience. It's just a weird, hilarious Florida nasty fever dream. So if that sounds <laughs> wow. good to you, go see Zola. <laughs> it's got a great cast. Uh it's just you know it's it's one of those movies that I think fever dream is the best way to describe it where you're just on this ride and it, at some point it ends. And but I just <laughs> I laugh so hard so many times. Nicholas Braun from Succession plays a supporting role in it. Um, he is, you know, cousin Greg in Succession. If you watch that show, he is so hilarious. I did not, did not expect him to be in this movie. He was fantastic. Taylor Page and Riley Keough are great as the leads. Uh, Coleman Domingo is, is in it. He's fantastic. Nice. Anyway, yeah, just if you like a nice, weird and also hilarious A24 experience. You will not be disappointed by Zola. I'm excited. Awesome. Cool. It's very rated R. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Noted. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, all right, patrons, if you're playing the drinking game, I hope you're drinking Cool Mom mocktails. Um, but <laughs> but if you're going to drink, I'd rather you do it with us. Because um, <laughs> I went to a 35 millimeter screening of... Uh-huh. Charlie Chaplin's 1936 film Modern Times. What? Wow. <laughs> wow. This was literally like the exact description on the drinking game, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I have one of those too. I'm so sorry. Oh <laughs> Pace yourselves, patrons. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Modern Times. I had never seen it before. It was one of my one of my big blind spots. And, oh, dude, it's so good. It's so good. It's so charming. It's so well made. And like it it's such a nice commentary on the state of society and the workforce and consumerism during depression during the depression but still relatable themes today that just sadly yep yeah exactly (laughs) and and of course like with most chaplin or keaton films they're just some insanely impressive long takes of stunts and sets and choreography where you're just like how did they do that you look up how they did that you're like what that's insane which you know nothing against cg and post-production effects but it's just what a great example of if you do something impressive in camera 100 years later it's gonna look as good as it did back then it's still impressive yeah (laughs) yeah and I now have a mega crush on Paulette Goddard, the female lead, who was also Charlie Chaplin's wife from 36 mm-hmm. to, to like after The Great Dictator. And she was in my age in the 1940s and she's been dead since 1990, but I'm still optimistic about my chances. <laughs> <laughs> I've spoken to my girlfriend about it. She gets it. She's like, oh, yeah, me too. So, you know, wish me totally. luck. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you haven't seen Modern Times, don't be don't be a dummy like me and get out there and go see it. Yeah. Awesome. Ideally in 35 millimeter. If sure. You can. <laughs> well, your mom sleeps next to you. <laughs> <laughs> that is a mom sleeping movie. And, and then claim uh, she didn't afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Uh, amazing. Cool. Trisha, what have you been watching? I uh, 
caught this German film that I was really excited to see. So there's a filmmaker named Christian Petzold um, who made a film called Transit that I really mm. loved. As far as I recall, it's currently streaming on Mubi. So you can check out Transit. Mm. It's really, really great. Oh, nice. He made another movie that stars the same stars from Transit, the same two leads that came out in 2020 called Undine. So those two leads are Paula Beer and Franz Rogowski. And I adore them. Undine uh, in, in this film... This is sort of like a mermaid myth, but not even at all. It's <laughs> it's a love story <laughs> with lots of water in it. <laughs> Titanic? Yeah, it's Titanic. Yeah. Uh, no, Franz Rogowski plays a deep sea, or he's an industrial diver that has to like dive down and weld things. And he's got like an old, you know, diver like helmet thing with like the bars on the, across the face. And- Diving bell. Thank you. Yes. Paula Beer plays a German historian there in Berlin, and she delivers these like lectures at this museum. She's a docent, if you will, about the architecture, the historical architecture of Berlin. Good chunks of the movie are just listening to her lecture about the architecture of Berlin, which is awesome. (laughs) And then a bunch of the rest of it is like industrial diving. But it's a really also great love story with some uh, supernatural elements. So this is the most Trisha recommendation (laughs) I've ever heard. It's so good. Okay, I actually like it's actually not quite as good as transit in my opinion but if you love transit you also will love undine mm. i'm here to tell you so uh came out in 2020 yeah by christian petzel check it out awesome <laughs> cool my what am i watching to keep with the the trend is not a movie <laughs> it's sponsor related and i'm really excited about it okay so like Today, I learned all about like the origin of AI and how it began. And, you know, the idea, you know, we talk about AI now in terms of uh, like computer games a lot. Like, you know, you're playing a game, you're fighting the enemies. Mm. How's the enemy AI? And games are actually like one of the first ways AI was used to like prove that computers could learn things. And so in the 1960s, this guy decided to teach an AI how to play tic-tac-toe but computers were super expensive. So he didn't use a computer. He used matchboxes. What? And filled them with uh, different little gems and pebbles. And like there are 304 possible ways that a tic-tac-toe board can be. So he used 304 different tic-tac-toe boxes with the different like iterations. But anyway, I can go into a lot of detail. Suffice it to say, it's really fascinating to just learn like the basic fundamental of how how does a computer learn something, right? Mm. Like, how do you do math and learn things? So it's really interesting. I learned all of this on Brilliant. So Brilliant is an app. There's a website, brilliant.org. It's available on your mobile device. I was using my iPad. It's really fun because it's a way of teaching like science and math and like computer science in a engaging, fun way. Like I'm someone that really enjoys interaction when I'm learning something. Mm -hmm. And so this course on artificial intelligence is like, we're going to tell you a little bit about like games, you know, tic-tac-toe here, prove that you know how to play tic-tac-toe. So you do a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, so what if a computer had to learn tic-tac-toe? Like, how would you teach it to know the next three steps? And it's like, oh, yeah, how what do I even know what the next three steps? And so it's like this kind of combination of information and then interaction that is just a really engaging 
way to learn something and that I return, uh, retained a lot of information from. Cool. And so Brilliant is awesome because they have tons of these courses in all things, again, math, science, computer science. And I'm excited about it because my girlfriend for the past six months has been using Brilliant every day. What? And I always like come into the room and she's like doing it during lunch. And I'm like, what is that? That looks fun. But I'm not going to ask about it because I'm stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Right. I have problems. But <laughs> they are now a sponsor of the podcast. So this gave me like the perfect opportunity to dive in. Yeah, there's just a ton of stuff like learn Python, like coding language, or just foundational computer science, like basics of programming, brush up on your algebra. There's lots of things. So kind of whatever you want to learn in this world of science and math STEM, Brilliant is a really fun way to learn. It's always like in kind of bite-sized chunks, so it's easy to fit it in, like in the midst of your day, like my girlfriend does. Anyway, so Brilliant is cool. They are the sponsor of this episode. Uh, if you want to learn more about Brilliant and sign up, just go to brilliant.org slash beyond the screenplay, where you can sign up for free. The first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. So brilliant.org slash beyond the screenplay. It's really cool. I learned a thing. I'm going to learn more about neural networks and I'll report back when I've created one that can replace me on this podcast. I was going to yeah. say, I'm actually scared of what you're going to learn on there. <laughs> I need brilliant for Spanish because mm. however they taught it in school did not work for me. But I, I love <laughs> yep. what you described as the, like, the learning process. That sounds great. Yeah. No, I wish we had something like this when we were when we were in school. So next time we come on and you say my CPU is a neural net processor, a learning computer, we'll understand <laughs> that Skynet is taking over. Right. You'll understand how I got there. Perfect. Awesome. Well, this has been our conversation about Mean Girls. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, as always, to the patrons for making the show possible and making us self-conscious with your drinking game. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. And we're getting very close to reaching our Patreon goal of 750 Yay. patrons to talk about Indiana Jones. So close! It might have actually even happened. I'm going to go check. Uh, but if it hasn't, sign up so we can so we can talk about Indiana Jones. Yay! Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. Gruel. Bye. Bye.